Good morning. Again, let's take our Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 6. Lord willing, we'll finish chapter 6 today. The text is Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to 20. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to 20. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath is given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Lord, again, we come to your word, we come to worship you, to learn from you and to learn about you, to learn what you would have us to do. And we would pray this morning, Lord, that your spirit would work in our hearts, expose our own sinfulness and weaknesses, that we might, by your grace, Lord, correct those and grow in Jesus. Lord, we give you glory for your word. And we praise you. Amen. Why is it that you should trust God? Why should we trust the Lord? For these beloved Hebrew believers, they had received Jesus Christ. They had become Christians. And life didn't get immediately better for them. In fact, it got more difficult. It got worse for them. When you trust Christ, there's no guarantee that automatically at the snap of your fingers that your life is going to somehow immediately become super sanctified in a sense that you will have no more problems ever again. In fact, remember Christ said if you want to follow him, you must pick up your cross to follow him. For these Believers in the book of Hebrews, they repented, they trusted Christ, and life got more difficult for them. Many of their loved ones were put in prison, and when they went and saw their loved ones, then they were persecuted and even robbed. And there came at least a temptation into their life that maybe it was better to leave Christ and to go back to their old religion, their old self-centered, human, will-driven, Second Temple Judaism religion of good works. Maybe they should give up worshiping Christ, and instead they should go to the temple, offer a sacrifice. After all, Jesus was not a Levite. He was from the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Levi. If you need a high priest to 
help to take care of your sin, perhaps Jesus is not sufficient. You need something else, somebody else. And for these Hebrew believers, their temptation would have been that was placed upon them by others. You need to go back to that temple, to your former religion, because at least those most likely are from the tribe of Levite and even related to Aaron. You've come to know Christ and your life has not got better, it's gotten worse. So why should you trust God, in other words? Why trust God? They're facing these storms of life in the book of Hebrews. We even see that when we read and study chapter 11, we'll see that all of these believers in Hebrews chapter 11, in one way or another, faced difficult times. Though there were some times of ease, like with Abraham and Moses and some others, their faith was especially shown not in the difficult, not in the peaceful times, but in the times of difficulty, in the storms of life. Why is it that that we trust God? We come to know Jesus. We we trust Him. Things can get difficult. So, in that difficulty, as a believer, why do we keep trusting God? Because we were promised heaven, we were promised redemption, we're promised forgiveness, we're promised that God's going to be with us, we're promised that God causes all things to work together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. But the reality is, oftentimes things get worse. And it's in that, that darkness, it's in that time of difficulty that we are especially called to trust the Lord. And it even says, at the end of verse 12 in Hebrews chapter 6, of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That is, faithful patience inherits the promises that God has offered to those that trust him. So this morning, we will say this primarily, faithful patience in the storms of life requires trusting the Lord like no one else. There's a question, though, and that is why. We need to have faithful patience as we trust the Lord like no one else. But this passage, verses 13 to 20, will tell us why. Because if you look at verse 13, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, says, For, for when God made the promise to Abraham, the for is giving support and strength for what was just said in verses 11 through 12. Verse 11 of chapter 6 says, Show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. If you really want to have this rock-solid assurance that you are really truly saved, that you really belong to your God, to, to, to God, and that your name is written on the rolls of heaven, then have this diligence as you press into your faith. Don't be sluggish, verse 12 says, but rather through faithful patience keep plowing ahead in Christ, trusting him and his promises. And then verses 13 through 20 are going to give us the reasons to trust him. And you can see it talks about who? The father of our faith, Abraham. And in this passage, it will go back and forth about faith and hope and faith and hope. 
you might remember that chapter 11 talks about this faith and hope throughout the whole passage. But chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So even before we get to chapter 11 of Hebrews, chapter 6 is beginning to lay this groundwork of how hope and faith work together especially in the life of Abraham. And you might remember on Romans 4, it says that Abraham basically hoped against hope. He had faith and he had hope that God would, would do something marvelous, even if it meant that he had to sacrifice his son, that God would still keep his promise, even rising Isaac up from the dead. And that is the background of the story, the narrative of Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to 20. That when you trust Christ and you place all of your hope and faith in him and are patient in Christ, he will never, ever let you down. He will always keep his promises. Even in the most darkest times, God is faithful and he will keep his promises. And this passage is going to give reasons for this trust. Number one, the first reason why we trust the Lord like no one else is because there was no one as great as the Lord in might or in right. There's nobody that has the power and authority like the Lord does, like God does, like Christ does. That's why I've said that we need to have this faithful patience in the storms of life because nobody is like God at all. We, we trust him like we trust no one else. Because this passage says, if you look at verse 13, he could swear by no one greater. In verse 17 and 18, it talks about that God is unchangeable and even that he's impossible to lie and even that Jesus Christ, in verse 20, is a forerunner for us forever. And so there is nobody, no thing, no, no entity, no organization no movement that is as great, as unchangeable, that is a forerunner, that is so sovereign, like verse 14, that we trust them over God. We trust God more than anyone else. Why is that? Well, first, because he's right and he has the might. He has more right, more authority, and more power than anyone else. And we see this in verses, really, verses 13 to 16. First, you can see this statement of greatness that he makes in verse 13. God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. You might remember when you were a kid and you made a promise, maybe your friend didn't believe you. I don't believe you. And so what did you say? I would say, I cross my heart, hope to die, and I'll stick a needle in my eye. And if I said something like that, that was my oath. My oath is my word. But my word had to be backed up by saying, I'm going to do something hurtful or crazy to myself if I don't keep my promise. Well, in the Old and New Testament, they would also give a promise and back it up with some kind of oath, but that oath would be something greater than them. It might be, I... Promise upon the gold of the temple. I promise upon I, I promise upon the ark of the covenant that if I don't carry this out, God might strike me dead. Usually, in an oath, it's either you promise something 
and base that upon judgment or you promise something and that is witnessed by somebody of greater authority. We're here in this passage. It says God makes this promise in Genesis. You can really look from Genesis 12 all the way to the end of section of at least Genesis 17, but even further than that, where God makes all these different promises to Abraham, right? He'll be a father of many nations, and there'll be tremendous blessings upon him. But he he didn't have any children, and finally has his own child through Sarah, and then God says, offer him up. But it says then here that God has made this promise to Abraham that through Abraham, God, through one seed of Abraham, God would bless all the nations and that Abraham's child and through him and and then through his child and all the grandchildren, there'd be many nations and a land would be theirs. When God promises this to Abraham, even during a time of darkness, right, that he would have to offer up his son. Horrible. God still promises that his promise of giving Abraham a son will be true, and the oath that he swears to is to himself. That is, God, when God calls on a higher authority, when I was a child, or even now, uh, if you've ever gone to court, you know, sometimes you have to raise your hand, and, you know, I promise, I swear, or if you're in the, the military or serving some way, I promise, you know, and you're swearing, promising, giving testimony before a greater authority, God does that, but God does it before and based upon himself. He swore by himself because you can look at the text. There's no one greater. There's no one greater than God. And in context, it's talking about his authority and his power. In order to keep somebody accountable and to bring judgment, that takes power. And that takes legal authority. And there's no one that has the legal authority or the legal power of judgment that's greater than God, than Yahweh. This is the statement of greatness. But then, in verse 14, he's going to give this scriptural proof from Genesis 22. And and it's after... Abraham proved his faith by being willing to sacrifice his son. And God says this in verse 14. And you see in that verse where it says, Surely I will bless you and surely I will multiply you. The the Greek text only has surely one time. Not twice, only one time. But basically the verbs in here, it has it. Twice, so let me then just give you a, a paraphrase. Verse 14, God is saying, Blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. In fact, Surely, blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. And all of this is very emphatic. And this is paying a picture of God's sovereignty. I'm the one that is able to determine, Abraham, whether or not that you will have a family that not only will inherit this land, but will be a blessing to the whole world and ultimately from Abraham to Christ. I will be the one 
surely they will multiply your multiples and there will be blessings of blessings upon you. I'm the one that's going to do that and no other. It's God that does this. But involved in that is this faithful patience. And you remember when we went through Abraham's life, was Abraham perfect? Abraham was far from perfect. But he had this plotting, faithful patience and believing the revelation of God. And Abraham, the text is saying, trusted God because he knew God had the right and he had the might. And then there is this, in the text, this synthesis of truth in verses 15 and 16. He's expanding on what he just said in verse 13. And so, having patiently waited, talking about Abraham, he obtained the promise. And in verse 15, it's the idea that he obtained the promise by patiently waiting. God is sovereign with his promises. He's going to do what he's going to do. But God has ordained the means of Abraham and you and I inheriting not all promises, but many promises through our faithful patience. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. That's a type of a conditional promise. Put God first, trust him, and then he's going to meet your needs. But it takes this faithful patience under the sovereignty of God. And then in verse 16, he's going to elaborate again, basically saying the same thing that he said in in verse 13, just to make it more emphatic, when people swear, when they make this oath and this promise, this declaration that they're going to do something, and they promise they're going to do it, they give an oath, and then that ends the argument, right? You've been been in a a disagreement or argument with somebody, I'm going to do this, and and I give you my word. Well, your word's not that good, because last time you said you would do it, and you didn't do it. And then you might say, I did when I was a kid. You know, if I don't do it, may I be ran over by a car? Have you ever said something like that? And you didn't really expect to be run over by a car, but you're saying, if if I don't do this, may something really bad happen to me. And you're saying, I promise, heart of my deepest heart, I really mean what I say, I'm going to do it. And then that ended the argument. That's basically what verse 16 is saying, is that when God tells Abraham that I will do what I said I'm going to do, and I promise based upon my authority and my power, that settles the argument. Because God himself is power and authority. And we've studied and looked at the life of Abraham and we know that God kept his promise. And really, the life of Abraham flowed from, the promises flowed from Genesis 3.15. And even the whole book, even the, the New Testament, but the, the book of Hebrews, flows out of this promise that God made to Abraham to bless him. Now, all that is saying this. You've heard the phrase and we agree with it. 
from the book of James and elsewhere. Faith what? Faith, uh, I think MacArthur wrote a book with this title, Faith Works. Right? But we could say in this passage, faith waits. Faith waits. Because that's what the main idea is in verse 15. It's that God is absolutely sovereign. God has the right and he has the might to do what he promised. Absolutely. And he's going to do it. But an ordained means to see that beautifully fulfilled in your life is, is by faithfully waiting upon God. And it may take your whole life into the next life. And we see this even in Hebrews chapter 10. You might remember chapter 10 verse 34. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. That is, they were looking to the future that God would bless them with these eternal possessions that would never be decayed and would be eternally protected. And we even see that in Hebrews chapter 11. That is, that there are times, even with Abraham, where we faithfully wait for that promise of God, and God will give us a glimpse of that promise, but ultimately the the main part of that promise, even for Abraham, who didn't see his whole family completely fulfill and, and grasp the, the whole promised land. Abraham didn't fully see that, but he has seen the fulfillment of God's promises now in heaven, and it's the same with you and I. God will keep his promises that he's made to us, and in this life there will be many fulfillments, but there will be also some fulfillments of God's promises that are not for this life, but are for the what? The next life. And that's greater because that means they are everlasting and eternal and will never tarnish or, or decay, ever. And God has the might and the right to do that. And so that's why we trust him. Nobody can keep a promise like God. He promised it and it will be done. Our job, our duty underneath his sovereign grace is to wait patiently and to continue to trust Jesus, and to take steps of faith and plow ahead. Number two, the second reason of why we can trust and should trust the Lord like no one else. We trust the Lord like no one else because the Lord is immutable, immutable. He is unchangeable. God is not a mutant that needs to change. God does not mutate. He does not improve or diminish. And we see this in verses 17 and 18. You can see in verse 17, it says the promise of the unchangeableness of his purpose. And then also in verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things, this theological doctrine of God's immutability is being highlighted in verses 17 and 18. We trust the Lord because he is unlike anybody else in the sense that he doesn't change. Even if you try to think of things that, that may never change. Do mountains change? Will Mount Everest change? Yes. Will Mount Rainier change? Yes. Did you guys hear about the earthquake? It was 3.1 off the coast of Washington. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's what I read 
Whether it's true or not, I don't know. Somewhere out there in the ocean, 3.1. That is that there are mountains and volcanoes and even our earth itself, uh, suns throughout the universe, all of the suns, the earth, everything in some way changes. Uh, for example, I thought, well, what about angels? Do, do, do angels change? Well, angels had to change because they never existed before. They had had a beginning. God has never had a beginning. God has always been God. There is a sense in which everything changes except for God. We trust the Lord because he is immutable. He does not mutate. He doesn't change because of lack within himself or a need to grow. So then his gospel is trustworthy. His person is trustworthy. We can trust God for forgiveness, for for redemption, for wisdom, for protection, for refuge, because he does not change. He is consistently the same. Pastors change, parents change, kids change, politicians change, movements change. God never changes in his character or his person. Now, with that in mind, that's just a glimpse of this idea of the unchangeableness of God, right? Malachi 3, 6 says what? The Lord does not change, therefore you are not consumed, O Jacob. God, one moment, it's not going to have this love for you, and then the next moment, this uncontrollable rage, it consume you. I might. God won't. Now, we're just going to get into these two verses underneath this second point a little bit. I think the Net Bible, uh, the New English Translation, is a little bit more clear than the New American Standard on verse 18. I think even the NIV is a little bit more clear in verse 18 than the New American Standard. The New American Standard says that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have taken refuge, would have strong encouragement. I'm sorry, I meant verse 17. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath. For me, the word interposed is difficult. It's hard to understand. You might have a raised on italics number, a letter by the word interposed. In the margin it says uh, guaranteed, guaranteed. The Net Bible says about verse 17, in the same way God wanted to demonstrate more clearly to the heirs of the promise that his purpose was unchangeable. And so he intervened with an oath. I'll read that again. In the same way, That is how God related to Abraham. He wants to relate to you in a very similar way. God wanted, though, to demonstrate even more clearly. More clearly than Abraham? God wanted to demonstrate, God wants to demonstrate to you more clearly than he did to Abraham? But Abraham is a hero of the faith. But he wants, God wants to demonstrate even more clearly, verse 17, to the heirs of the promise, that's you and I, 
than changeableness of his purpose, what he plans to do, he interposed. That is, he guaranteed or intervened or interceded with an oath. This word interposed here, intervened, is the idea of somebody that comes into a business deal to guarantee something to be real and that it's going to happen. It's an, an outsider that comes and intervenes, interposes to guarantee something. He is the guarantee or. That's the idea of interposed. God himself became the guarantee or with an oath. God did this. And again, if you look at verse 17, it says in, in a very similar way, God did this, but even to a degree that Abraham didn't have, wanted to show that God's purpose, plan of promises will be 100% guaranteed that he himself became the guarantee or in a unique way and did it with his own oath in a way that would be even more clear than what he did with Abraham. That's amazing. (laughs) Because again, he's writing, the Spirit of God is writing through this writer to these believers that had formerly been Jews in terms of their religion. They were saved out of that. They're being tempted to go back to that. They're seeking to press forward in Christ, though there is some temptation. They knew the Hebrew Bible apparently in their history very well. And so here... The Spirit of God is saying that God, with with all believers, wanted to show his guarantee, his oath and his promise to save you and to keep you saved, and to be all that you need to be to get you to heaven and to keep you your, your estate in heaven there reserved for you forever. God himself gave a unique oath himself. It's an essence saying that he himself is the oath. Now, who are the heirs? Who are the heirs? Who are these that inherit it? Well, we can see from chapter 3, verse 19, that just because you're part of a group in terms of your position or your family, we can see in Hebrews 3, 19, so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Just because they were, and historically, just because they had a relationship to to Abraham, didn't mean that they were saved, right? There were these Israelis that physically were delivered from bondage of slavery in Egypt, but they weren't able to enter the promised land because they didn't believe. They were heirs physically, but not spiritually. We can even see that in chapter 3, verse 12, it says, be careful that there's not an unbelieving heart and falling away from the living God. Chapter 4, verse 14 says, Let us hold fast our confession, that is, that Jesus is the Son of God, and that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Those that are heirs of the promise from Genesis 3.15, going all the way up to being in heaven forever and enjoying the glory of God and having glory ourselves, it says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. These are the promises of God, that God gives us glory in Christ forever and forever 
this lasting possession, Christ and all that he has for us forever. These are his promises, and we are heirs by faith, by trusting him. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, says that Christ became our propitiation, and that he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Those are the promises of God, and we inherit those through faith in Jesus Christ. So hopefully this is helping us to understand verse 17 a little bit better, but even more, as we press into verse 17 and 18 a little bit more, what is this that we have where it says, interposed, that is guaranteed, intervened with an oath? I think... In a nutshell, and I already said it previously, intervened with an oath is referring to Christ himself. And it's parallel with God and Abraham and Isaac. God told Abraham, offer up your son as a sacrifice to me. And it says later in Hebrews that Abraham was willing to do that because he knew if that happened, that God would rise up Isaac from the dead. But what did God do? God provided a what? God interposed. God interceded. God intervened. Got involved. And gave a lamb. Well, verse 17 is saying that God himself intervened with an oath. With a promise that what he said he would do. That Genesis 3.15, God promised. And that promise ran throughout the whole Bible that God would provide a Savior. Well, that Hebrews here, 6.17, is saying that God himself was that oath. He was that ultimate lamb that the whole book of Leviticus pointed to. I believe that, that that's what verse 17 is saying. Now, It even talks about in verse 17, you can see the word purpose. And even earlier, desiring. Both of these terms, if you're, some of you have your Greek Bibles, it's not thalo, it's not that will, but it's bulamai. Bulamai is the idea more of that sovereign decreed will of God, God's ultimate purpose that he determined long ago. And so for those those reasons, it seems to me that this word interposed with an oath, it's intervened with an oath. It's Christ himself. Shorthand, you would say John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not go to hell, but have eternal, wonderful life with him forever. And I believe that that is the unfolding of this oath. And then in verse 18, he's going to elaborate on this a little bit more. And so he says, so that God himself became this oath. He intervened with an oath that he would be the one in his incarnation to live a perfect life, dying a cross for sinners that trust him and forgive them and bring them to glory with him forever. 
So that by two unchangeable, when it says things, it's the Greek word pragma, pragma. Does that word sound familiar? Pragma. We get our English word pragmatics from it. By two pragma, by two practical principles, by two deeds or actions in which it's impossible for God to lie. Now, here you have some different opinions. When you look at verse 18, it says, by two unchangeable things. Most commentators and people will say it's God's promise and God's oath. Those are the two unchangeable things. God's promise and God's oath. Again, so we're not getting lost. The first point, the first reason to trust God is because God is, is always right and he has the greatest might in the universe. The second reason to trust God is because God is unchanging. This passage here is saying in verse 18 that there are at least two things about God that don't change. Many people, probably most, say it's God's promise and God's oath. I, I don't think that's necessarily it. I, I don't think that's the best way to look at what these two unchangeable things are. Some people will say that it's impossible for God to lie. That's one unchangeable thing. And the second unchangeable thing is God's promise. While I think that is true, I don't think that's the referent for two unchangeable things. Rather, I think the text is doing this. God intervened into the life of of humans by he himself being the Savior and gives these two unchangeable principles. Look, God doesn't lie, right? If God said that he's going to give a Savior, if God said he's going to redeem the whole world, God's going to do it. That's how this phrase, it is impossible for God to lie, that's how it's being used. It's saying when God declares something, like Genesis 15, Genesis 3.15, that there's going to be a Savior, that he's going to bless Abraham, that there's going to be a Messiah born in Bethlehem, that Satan's going to be defeated. God's not a liar. It's going to happen. You can bank your whole eternity upon God. God keeps his word. Always. Now, these two unchangeable things are unfolded in the rest of verse 18 and there's in, in verse 19. The first unchangeable thing, principle, is when you hide in Jesus Christ, he gives you overcoming hope. The hope against all the horrors of the kingdom of darkness and all the despair that life might bring. And you see that in verse 18, because right after it says, it's impossible for God to lie. It says, we that have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. And strong encouragement is emphatic. That we would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that God gives us, the hope of the gospel and all the promises of the gospel. And what says, we who have taken refuge... The word refuge is katafuge, fuge, fuge. It's the idea of fugitive. That's what the word means, fugitive. And kata is a preposition that intensifies the verb. Katafuge means somebody that is an extreme fugitive. We who have become extreme 
fugitive, we that have become real refugees in Jesus, we're the ones that have escuous. Remember going through again Ephesians, all this like, Six different power words that are repeated over and over and over and over in Ephesians. This is one of those words here. Strong encouragement. That we would have encouragement that is so strong that we take hold. I I brought up Ephesians and the power words because when it says take hold, it's the word kratos. Which we get the the kra, like a K-R-A or C-R-A. We get democracy, theocracy. It's the idea of overcoming power that you grab it and take hold of it. The idea then in this text, verse 18, the principle that I think is unchangeable is that when you hide in Jesus and you take refuge in him, it's so wonderful that you begin to take more hope. And and then you hide a little bit longer in Jesus and you see how sweet, how wonderful, how true that Jesus is sufficient, he's supreme, he keeps his promises and then you hope even more and you take hope and then you take it more and more and more and more because you're hiding more and more and more and more and greater in Jesus Christ. Oh, taste and see that God is good, how blessed all take refuge in him. That applies ultimately to Jesus. And that's why Psalm 2.12 says, kiss the son. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. And this is an unchangeable principle that the wisest and rightest, the right thing and the wise thing to do is that you take refuge in Jesus. You flee and you run to Jesus. Don't drift away from Jesus. Run to Jesus. And there is no greater refuge that you can ever have. And the more that you hide in Jesus, that is, the more you trust him and go to him and depend upon him, and then you see there's hope in him, then that gives you this appetite to want even more of Jesus. And then that gives you more hope. And then you take it. Take hope from Jesus instead of drifting away. We don't hide in a human creature. So you, you don't hide. May Trump be president in 2024. Or maybe it's, I want a Kennedy in the White House. If we have a Kennedy in the White House, again. No, both those political parties are rubbish. We need a new political party. That's not our hope. Our hope is in Jesus. For peace. It doesn't mean you don't get involved in politics, but ultimately your hope is in Jesus. Even my hope can't be in my own health. My, my hope, what I hide in, what you hide in, ultimately, primarily, foundationally has to be that God, man, the mediator, the great high priest, Jesus Christ. And that is where our hope is. Now, he's going to give a second unchangeable principle. And that second unchangeable principle will be our third reason. A third reason to trust the Lord like no one else will be our second unchangeable principle. So the third reason, which is the second unchangeable principle that he talks about in verse 18 is this. Trust the Lord like no other because he did what no other could ever do for you. Trust the Lord, because he did for you what no one ever could do, or what no one even would do for you. 
Not even your daddy or your mommy or your children or your political representative or your doctor. Nobody did what Jesus could and would do for you. This is what verses 19 and 20 is saying. And it's this second unchangeable pragma principle. What keeps you and I from drifting away from the Lord is not what primarily we have done, but what Christ has done and is doing. It's not our commitment to Christ or to the church or how much we read the Bible. It's the work that Jesus did and the intercession and interceding he's doing now for us that is our anchor. Christ's work is our anchor of our life, of our soul. This is the unchangeable principle. Now, if you look at verse 19, you might have a I won by it again, and that's because it's trying to give a little bit more clarity and in the margin. Sometimes what our Bibles would do, in order to give us clarity, they might add a word or two there. Sometimes it's helpful. Sometimes it may not be so helpful. Here, the word hope is in verse 18. There's not the word hope at all in verse 19. Elpidia is the word hope in Greek. You have that at the end of verse 18, but not not here in verse 19. So verse 18 could be read like this. To take hold of the hope set before us. This we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. That's the best way, I think, to read it. This we have as an anchor. It's referring to to Jesus. This we have as an anchor. It's not, though it's not wrong, it's more direct and more clear. The text is saying is our anchor isn't our hope. Our anchor is Christ. My, My lifeline from me to heaven isn't even my hope. It's Christ himself. What he already did in his ministry now for me, that is my, that's what I'm I'm attached to, what he did. I'm secured by what he did and what he's doing. Yes, that's my hope, but that's not the point of verse 19. Not directly. These believers in this book, they're being tempted to attach themselves, their security, their stability, their health, their wealth, their eternity, their forgiveness, their redemption, their happiness. They're being tempted to attach it to attach it to what they wore before. They're being tempted to toss in the towel, to, to tap out on Christianity. What we had in the past was better, or there's something else better than Jesus. 
And so they're being tempted to give up Christ. Because maybe there's something that's more sure, more steadfast, more reliable is the idea when it says here, sure and steadfast. Something that is super sustainable and super secure, better than a titanium, admantium panic room. They were looking for something like that to protect them. This passage is saying it's not human religion. It's no human person. It's no angel. Hebrews chapter 1. It's no prophet. It's no religious ritual, the Sabbath. It's a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. He's the anchor. Why is that? Well, verse 19 is going to say, you can please look at the text, because he is enters within the veil. It's referring to the Old Testament between the Holy of Holies and the outer temple. There was the big, huge curtain, and only the high priest could go through that, past that once a year to meet with God, bringing the sins of all the people. Well, here it says that Jesus Christ is the one that enters into the veil, and he doesn't leave. It's referring to, to heaven. He's going into that very presence of God the Father, and he's staying there, verse 20, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. It's saying that we ourselves are going to be there in the future with God the Father. But the person that went in front of us to accomplish that work for us, that is Jesus. It wasn't Aaron. It wasn't Moses. It wasn't the Levites. It wasn't Joshua. It wasn't any angel. It was Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior. Because his life, going back to chapter 1, was perfect. He never sinned, ever. Because he died on the cross for sinners. A perfect substitution. Chapter 1, and rose again. Chapter 1, verse 2 of Hebrews says, When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels. Christ finished his work. And so... He died, he lived the perfect life, died on the cross for sinners, rose again. The Lord accepted his work. He ascended to heaven. He sits down at the right-hand side of God the Father. But it's not period and continues to represent us before God the Father. That's why it says he became a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now he's going to explain and elaborate on what he means by Melchizedek later in chapter 7, but it's the idea that greater a greater priest than than Aaron and Levi was who? Melchizedek, the, the priest king. Why is that? How is that seen? Because Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. And Abraham was the forefather of Aaron and the Levites. But greater than Abraham was Melchizedek. So greater than the Levites and Aaron is Melchizedek. And Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek. So why would you be tempted to go back to a lesser priest? Why would you go back, why would you want to go back to like a substandard priest compared to the Lord Jesus Christ? That's what the idea is in verses 19 to 20. That Jesus Christ is the perfect great high priest that accomplished everything that he was supposed to accomplish. Hebrews 4.14, he's 
the great high peace who passed through, who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. This is the high priest that we have. He is our anchor, and so you trust him. And you never leave him. You don't throw in the towel. You don't give up. What are you attaching yourself to for, for hope, for success, for, for love, for redemption, for heaven? Your good works is not good enough to attach you to heaven. Your parents are not good enough to attach you to heaven. Reading your Bible is not going to, it's a great anchor, but just reading the Bible itself is not a sufficient anchor to keep you out of hell. You have to know Jesus Christ by faith. Asking Jesus Christ to save you. But even as believers, at times we can be tempted. Maybe if I just, certainly we want to be wise and be sure that we have you know, a savings account, extra food, that we seek to have good health, so forth, and be prepared in life and, and provide for our family. But you could do all those things and have still have a horrible life and then die and go to hell. Certainly do those things, but even more important is being sure that you're right with Christ and being sure that he is your anchor so if there's a tsunami, tidal wave of difficulty and trials that come into your life, you're anchored to Jesus, who's in heaven with God the Father, being with him and being redeemed by him and being glorified with him. That is your great hope. That is your expectation. That is where your faith is at. That is that you're not anticipating that in this life God is going to answer every single he promised that he made to you is going to be in this life. That would be horrible. Uh, are you? Am I being clear? I think the Bible says, and I'm saying, I don't want God for you or for me to answer all of his promises simply in this life. Because then when you die, that's it. The best promises God is saving for forever with him in heaven. And that is this anchor that we have in Jesus. Now, who else lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose again, and now lives, as it says in Hebrews 7.25, lives to intercede before God the Father for you without fail. Who else does that for you? Who else would volunteer to do that for you and do it perfectly? There is no one else except for Jesus Christ. And so that's why we say the third reason why we trust the Lord is because he's like no one else, that he did what nobody could ever do for you. And even before we close, when it says here, In verses 19 to 20, verse 20, he became a forerunner for us. That is used emphatically, meaning that with pointed effort, this passage is saying, for all those that trust him, he did it for you. So then why drift away from him? Why 
Turn your back on him. Don't throw in the towel. Don't give up on Christ. And furthermore, as we conclude now, though feelings are not unimportant, God's promises and trusting him sometimes will be in the face of feelings. Even when we feel lost or confused, when we feel depressed or like there is no hope, that is the time when we have even more, by God's grace, we have more determination to have even more faithful patience. And as time goes by, by God's grace, we break through that wall of darkness into the joyful light of God's grace and even his presence. So then, trust God more than anyone or anything else to get you through the storms of life. Look at Jesus Christ. He is different and better than anyone else. And remember what we said in the book of Hebrews. It's not just that Jesus is better. He is the best. And so we trust him because he's like no one else. Don't throw away the towel. Don't tap out yet. Be faithful until the end. God will keep his promises. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that we would always have our eyes fixed upon Christ, who never tapped out, who never threw in the towel ever, not even for a millisecond, but was 100% faithful until the end. May we trust you and your faithfulness, Lord Jesus. Lord, use your word now in all of our lives. For Christ's sake, amen.